Hello and welcome to the Translation Company Talk, a weekly podcast show focusing on translation services and the language industry. The Translation Company Talk covers topics of interest for professionals engaged in the business of translation, localization, transcription, interpreting, and language technology. The Translation Company Talk is sponsored by YYZ Translations. Your host is Sultan Ghaznawi with today's episode. Hello and welcome to the Translation Company Talk podcast. I'm your host, Sultan Ghaznawi. Today we are going to cover a number of topics related to leadership and management in the language translation industry. I'm excited to be talking with my guest, Veronique Oskaya, as she has deep insights in our industry. Veronique Oskaya is CEO at Argos Multilingual, a global LSE specialized in life sciences manufacturing and technology. She started her localization career with Linebridge, where she held a variety of roles and drove global sales and marketing at Moravia. Prior to joining Argos, Veronique was CEO at Belgium-based LSE Explanation. She is also a former board chair for Gala. Welcome to the translation company talk, Veronique. Thank you, Sultan. Pleasure to be here. All right. Let me start by asking you to share a few words about your beginnings at the, in, in the language industry. I know you started in operations and moved around in different areas of business. That's right. So it was, you know, I think many of our colleagues in this industry who started in the late 90s, it was a little bit by accident. Um, I was actually designed for a diplomatic career and I was working in Dublin in the French embassy and I, and I just... It didn't stick. It was not something that was making me want to get up every day. And, and I thought, okay, I've studied international uh, relations and, and, and administration for many years, and now I don't like it. And at the time, what I did is that I saw that, um, you know, it was a, a time of effervescence in Dublin with Novell and Microsoft, all these companies setting up shop and starting what was called localization. And I had no idea, but I, I got lucky. I, I started doing a little bit of translation. And the company I joined was actually to become Lionbridge. And uh, so I did translation, I did DTP, I did some engineering testing. It was great because I really got to look under the bonnet or under the hood and, and learn about a lot of the, the, the functions. Um, and so I moved into ops and I, I really liked that. And I was managing the, the, the operations in, in Dublin for, for a while. And then I got the opportunity to do business development. And I felt that this was something very close to heart, and um, and I went into sales management and general management. So that was all during all these opportunities at Lionbridge, and then I moved on to um, to Moravia, one of the competitors after that. Wow, very interesting. And and what drove you to join the language industry? From the you know you wanted to be part of the diplomatic corps, I guess at some point. I know the story, but what really caught your interest in in, in the language industry? It was the fact that. You know, I was already multilingual and I thought, oh, that's interesting that I can use that part. You know, I, I had studied apply languages in parallel to, to, the, to the, the politics or uh, um, uh, courses that, that I took. And I thought, okay, I can use that. But what I realized very quickly being on the LSC side was the variety actually kept me really interested. And I, and, and as a, you know, as a person, you may have different uh, things that you like. Some people love to just do the same thing. Over they like it. I, yeah. I don't. I love change and I like to learn. I learn even today. I try to learn something new every day. And, and, and I thought there you could do problem solving, helping people also connect, you know, and, and connecting businesses. I, I find that the variety was, uh, was attractive. And, you know, if you look back 20 years, 
and, and the usage of the, I couldn't be a translator today. I couldn't use the tech. <laughs> I think that's also something that's been that's been quite fun to 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 uh, to experience. So uh, the, on on that question on that subject, let me ask you. Uh, you've seen everything transform from the early days until now. What's been one of those exciting changes that that you think transformed our industry? You know, what I think has been very exciting is today the ability to actually translate way more content than we could 10 years ago. And technology has enabled that. Um, and, and I'm a firm believer that you need different processes and different technology for different types of content. It doesn't have to be one way. And I find it exciting that I can use my phone and use an app and try to understand somebody in Thailand or that I can, you know, machine translate some things on the go to get a gist of a text, um, all the way to actually solving very complex uh, localization challenges for enterprise customers. So I think what's been exciting is actually the evolution of tech and also the evolution of the mindset of people in the industry to say, you know what, it's a bit like the car wash approach, different programs and processes for different outputs and different pricing. And I think that enables people to actually get more access to more um, information in their language today. I agree with you. Let's talk about leadership. You are in that role. What does it take to be a good leader? I would say the one word that I keep on thinking is versatile. You cannot be, in my humble opinion, uh, just one type of leader. So let me explain a little bit. I've done a little bit of coaching and research on what kind of a leader am I to try and understand myself and, and, you know, and what are the different types out there. And I came to this conclusion that I'm what is called author, authoritative leader, leader. That means, that doesn't mean like I'm a dictator. It means actually that I listen, I map the way, but then when I set the course, I kind of embark people with me and I try to have them engaged. Um, which means also that I spend time to explain the strategy. You know, I don't, I don't just say that's the way it has to be. Do it. I explain the why, but then also that means you give people choice and, and some latitude to achieve these goals that you've set. However, you know, in different times, you need to have different styles, in my opinion. So today it's COVID. The authoritative style is good in uncertainty times because you set the course and you remove anxiety levels among your employees by, by being very clear on to where you're headed. It may be times of crisis, you need to be more affiliative, a bit more, you know, motherly or fatherly and, and being very much in tune with the employees needs. Sometimes you may need to be coaching type, coaching type. You would be, you know what, Sultan, what about this? Why don't you consider that? So versatility to me is very important because, you know, everything changes all the time. You know, it's a VUCA world, as, as we say. So you need to be able to understand what kind of behavior to turn on depending on the different uh, situations um, you, you may be into. So th- there is a dilemma. You have to look after your people and staff, but at the same time make the client feel like they are the highest priority. That's actually why this group of people exist to work together under the banner of the company to serve the client. How do you balance the need for client care and looking after your team? And, and I would nearly add also certain investors. So if you're a CEO, you have kind of three audiences or stakeholders. Of course. Your customers, your employees, your investors. When it comes to employees and customers, here's what I believe that if you do the right thing, you're going to get the right result. You know, that's one of the principles from good to great. One of my favorite books. It's ancient, but it still holds. And I really believe that, that if 
you want to be a growth leader, which I believe that, you know, that's my, my profile. It's about serving your customers and, and it's about actually weaving this customer centricity within your organization. And, and that's something, you know, some people ask me, oh, wow, you know, when you were at Moravia, revenue grew in a crazy way, you know, organically. And it's because we changed the mentality from, oh my God, a new project to, yay, a new project. This is not so easy. You, it, it's about really kind of, again, you explain the strategy and you also set rewards for people to do the right thing. So I, I don't necessarily think that there's a d- dilemma, but it's really kind of for people to understand that growth is a must. What's in it for them? And also supporting them because sometimes, yeah, it might creak a little bit you know, in terms right. of scale and all that, but showing your team that you're there to listen and actually take actions, you know, um, if, if it's necessary. So, so that is to me, my big uh, mantra is customer obsessed. I call it. Right. Um, and, and then you see, you know, teams do amazing things for the customers. And, and, and you see then customer retention, of course, and, and, and growth as, as a result. So leaders have to instill values and inspire teams. And, and, and how do you do that? I mean, especially in the, the challenge we are facing right now with uh, people not being uh, working, to, not being in the same office or working together. And, and they need inspiration. Um, they need some sort of motivation to have the same amount of energy as they had before. How do you achieve that? So, yeah, it's a fantastic question. So, you know, it takes a little bit more than just one-to-ones. I, I mean, what I, what I don't believe in, let's start with that. What I don't believe in is this kind of once a year survey. I've given up on that several years ago because that's, you know, it takes a temperature check once in a moment. And you know what? You recall what happened in the past week, not necessarily what happened six months ago. So I'm much more in favor of this constant feedback loop. Um, and you cannot do it by yourself. Right. So what, what I do as, as, as the leader of the organization, I do one to one with staff. So that means I have my, my direct reports and we have weekly stuff, but I actually do talk to as many employees as I can on a one to one basis, 30 minutes. And, but I'm not the only one doing that. So there's, there's a number of managers in the organization doing that. So really getting this constant feedback and it might be rumors or feelings or, you know, trying to really keep a temperature check on what's going on. The second thing is training. I do think that this is something that's a little bit underestimated. And how do you get people to develop their skills? It's this constant, you know, map or not map, but roadmap of training that you can give them on, on hard skills, soft skills. It might be coaching. I think that's very important because you're actually helping shape the leaders of tomorrow. So that's why I try to spend time on is that, you know, also our mid management. Um, layer of uh, people, how do they actually help their teams grow? Um, and then, of course, the last third point is you have to be welcoming ideas and managing expectations. And welcoming ideas is not just, oh, yeah, yeah, tell me. And I, I don't really intently listen. And the amount of gems I've picked up from conversation with people in engineering and project management, it's unbelievable. But you also have to manage to be clear on expectations, right? 
Um, and, and, and I think that creates a healthy frame. Let's talk about understanding and learning about the morale of your team. It takes more than simple conversations to learn what your staff or workforce is thinking, what they need and their worries are. As a leader, how do you develop that sense and skill? First of all, I think, I think some, it's going to sound wishy-washy, but you have to love people. You have to like interaction with people, right? Um, and also really be a little bit of a psychologist and understand that not everybody's like you. Different personalities. Some people are more introvert, extrovert. So understanding people and not sometimes push it too much. If somebody is not comfortable sharing with you, you know, don't make them feel uncomfortable. Find another way uh, for them to share. They might be, you know, in an anonymous way in writing or, you know. So I think that it, it, it's kind of a weave, something you weave. So it's like these conversations, but also feedback from, 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 from other managers. Um, and what we've done is that we've also created an innovation hub. And this has been great because it's like a, I would call it a brainstorm box, which is virtual, where people come in and out. And it's amazing. People you would never have thought would come up with ideas are just, you know, shining suddenly. Or things like, let me give you another example. Um, when you establish a kind of your marketing and let's say you want to create your mission statement. I'm a, you know, I have ideas of where I want, what I want it to, to be and what I believe it to be. But why ignore your stuff? They're, you know, they're part of your organization and they live and breathe your organization. And that's the kind of things we do. We said, Hey, little competition. Who's going to come up with a mission statement? Things like this. And I think that kind of giving people a voice is actually um, very important. And as I say, like you, you need to be a bit of a people person for making that, uh, making that work. That's actually a, a good point. Continuing on to a related subject, you mentioned that you encourage your team to brainstorm and come up with innovative ideas and provide rationale. So on that note, if you were to break down the reason for existence of a language company, how would you describe the why, how, and what components of it? Is there an LSE that has articulated that very clearly and that you like the way they presented their mission, vision, and object objectives? Yeah, I think I've seen some organization who come up with some really interesting positioning and, and, and mission. I mean, I, I know, for example, this specialized company called Unbabble, and I love the way that they go and they say, you know what, we're going to create the world translation layer, and but they're very specific about what they do. And that's what I was mentioning at the beginning, this kind of car wash approach. You know, they, they, they deal with, um, call centers and changing the model there. And that I mentioned that because that was my first role in sales back in the day. I was BDM, so business development manager for e-support. I recall that was my first presentation to a group of call center managers and directors in London. We were in this hotel in, in London and the air conditioning broke, it was 40 degrees Celsius. And I'm there, young BDM explaining things about translation to this bunch of people. And when I left, I had a couple of conversations and I realized I will not sell anything because I realized I did not understand those customers and what they needed. They're running call centers and they have hundreds of heads and they're trying to serve their customers in multiple languages much faster. And adding heads is not the solution. Right. And, and that kind of made me think that, you know, when you do a positioning for your company, what problem are you trying to solve? The why? And I do believe that in our industry, there's actually a room for a lot of different players that solve different problems. Right. It's really not one size fits all. 
Did that answer your question? Indeed, uh, it did. I'm in agreement with you. There are a variety of language areas that a translation company can be involved in and add value. What I don't get is that the why and how parts are not very clear. Everyone focuses on bragging about the what part, which is we provide great translation service. Our rates are low, quality is great, we're fast. Very few companies make an effort to explain why they exist. What problem are they trying to solve? And I see that as a common trend. I don't think that we have the right marketing and business acumen within LSE leadership teams, at least from what is visible. They have not been able to clearly articulate and tell people why they exist. That explains why customers don't see value in them and can see them as a replaceable commodity. What are your thoughts? And you know what, Sultan? I think that a lot has to do about focus to get to the why. So if you're an LSC and you're specializing in an area, um, let's say take life science, I mean, your, your why is that you're helping this organization um, bring, you know, drugs that are going to save lives out to the market right. faster and better. And, you know, that's kind of, that's kind of your why. And, and the thing is that you need to be able to really understand what's driving these organizations. I think that sometimes that, you know, it's not just about translating words. It's what problems are you really solving? Absolutely. And, and, and unless you really, you know, first, you know, you have that domain expertise or that knowledge. And also it's like asking customer. I had a very interesting anecdote that years back where I traveled to Texas to a customer and there were some challenges with validation of the translation it was in, in medical devices, challenges with the, the validation. And my operational teams were saying, you yeah, know, Veronique, you know what? The customer comes back three months later with changes to the translation when the project is completed. And I said, but do you know why? And they made an assumption. Oh, you know, they're not very... When I was in Texas, the lady who was managing this project, she sat me down and she showed me their process and why this took three months. And you know what? That was like the little bolt that came up. It's like, you know what? Ask and understand. And then if you understand your customer better, this is how you will be able to help them in a more Absolutely. significant way. Well, um, uh, let's talk about clients. Uh, it's a good time to speak about them. I prefer to call them clients as opposed to customers because in my right. old job, we were told that customers are one-time buyers, whereas client, clients are repeat and oh. continuous business. So, <laughs> so in our industry, we like that. Uh, as a leader of a large organization, how often do you deal with clients? Do you support your biz dev team and speaking with clients to build relationships? Tell us a little bit about that. So, um, I mean, really the, the people who deal the most with the customers are our project managers on a daily basis and our account managers. However, I mean, I, I do a couple of things. So first of all, I try to meet our customers. I mean, these days it's virtually <laughs> as much as I can. Uh, but having a commercial background also, I love that part of the job. And I think that if you're a CEO and you don't know your top 20, there's a problem. You should know your top 20 customers at least. Of right. Course. So I try to meet them and, and the conversations we have are not so much about projects. It's more about their goals and the direction their companies are doing and some of the challenges they're trying to solve. So that's, that's one. And then I do quite a bit behind the scenes. And that I mean is, is working with sales managers on strategic accounts or large deals. And what I do typically is, um, a little bit of coaching. Is this kind of, have you considered that? Because I have a bit of experience also from, you know, from my past working with some very big players and, and quite a lot of complexity. So that's the bit that I do. Um, and helping them, what I think is a weakness in, in our industry is really mapping a customer and, 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 uh, and understanding 
all of the areas where you could help them. So thinking a little bit of outside the box. That requires a bit of structure. So for example, one thing I would launch always is having account plans in place. And I might be sitting in the first couple of reviews just to kind of get a feel. It also helps me understand what we're doing for, for our customers. So yeah, it's, it's this kind of front facing to some extent, but quite a bit in the, in the background. So uh, still on the subject of clients, uh, mm-hmm. how do you make sure that you do not become the bottleneck mm-hmm. uh, if you as a leader are involved in the business development cycle? You know, I kind of come from a school of customers first, so I would hate to think I'm a bottleneck. So you know what? The key is to have smart people, have super talented people in the team. So I don't think they would say I am the bottleneck because I would just, you know, if I see I cannot do something on time, like I've committed, I very quickly will make sure somebody else gets it done. So there, you know, it's about trusting your teams. I mean, I'm more kind of an executive sponsor or a sounding board. Um, so typically, you know, if you have great teams, we're also the luxury of a company that's of a certain size. Right. So you're not doing that yourself. I think when you're a small company and as a CEO, you're also the commercial or salesperson. That that transition to say, how do I scale? Like, do I get to the next level? You know, when you realize you're, bottom, you're the bottleneck, then it's time to say, you know what? I need a different model. You have to step back to serve the customers, right? Right, absolutely. absolutely. And and I think many smaller companies, they 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 that's one of the things high on their agenda. You know, how do I get to that next level? And, and that's actually the purpose of this question because a lot of uh, translation companies, majority of them are, you know, within small to medium size, and and they have a problem scaling up. And what they don't realize is that most of the time the bottleneck is the the person running the company. So that's why I asked the question: How do you make sure that you are not not the bottleneck? How do you um, move yourself away from you know doing everything? Right, right, right. And and one thing that I can recommend as a piece of advice because I've seen that happen many times: If you're a small company, so one two million dollars, or and and you're looking to actually expand sales because you're doing it yourself and you need somebody else to take this over. My recommendation is not to hire somebody that is too, let's, I would I say too experienced and comes from a very big company. Right. And the reason I'm saying that is that I've seen this failing. Why? Because when you come from a big corporate, you're used to a certain number of things being in place and a certain process. Um, when you're a small company, you need a, a, a salesperson that's going to be, uh, I call it conveyor belt salesperson, you know, from the beginning <laughs> of the conveyor belt till the end, who's going to be really also not afraid to roll up the sleeves and, and may have to double in vendor management. Right. And, you know, I mean, you need, you need to really have somebody who's very flexible. And sometimes if you hire someone who's, who's just used to doing, you know, yeah, it's very exciting, multi-million deals, but is that really something that's a good fit for your business? Yeah, of maybe course. Maybe in a few years' time. Yeah. Yeah. So we have the maturity model for localization uh, within mm-hmm. uh, enterprises. So I think we need a similar model for translation companies because some of them are mature in their processes, and um, a lot of them are not. They're they're just on their way to getting there. So you're right. A good fit between uh, the seniority of the salesperson and the maturity of the company would uh, eventually uh, translate mm-hmm. to success. So um, anyway, uh, let's talk about. Conferences. We talked about that <laughs> earlier. <laughs> they are on hold, most of them, and we have all kinds of virtual events. Let me ask you about the relationship building aspect. In the past, we used to mingle with our clients and peers in events like Lockworld and and so on. <laughs> uh, what is your preferred method of maintaining relationship with clients, in, in particular now? 
Right. So yes, for sure. I mean, you're, 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 you're so right. Industry events, perfect place where you have a maximum of people under one, lo- in one location. Right. I mean, what I do is I call people. <laughs> I, 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 I call people. I use LinkedIn a lot. Okay. So that's something that, you know, to maintain relationships and, um, uh, but then I, I, I call people, it takes five minutes, six, 10 minutes, but I think that that you, it, you can't beat the, the you know, the, the conversation part. The I think person in writing, person. yeah, I think in writing, maintaining relationships and writing stuff, and it's not really relationships, you know what I mean? It's just of more course. acquaintances. Um, what I find interesting now, and I think that's that's a, not a headache, but a challenge for for the likes of Lockworld and other organization is, you know, how can you have a virtual event that is actually going to help do some of that networking? So I'm very curious to see how Lockworld will work out next week. I, I, I took part in an event recently where, you know, it ended up being content presented to you. The right, networking right. element was not there. So I think that I have seen that because of lockdown and the fact that, you know, I usually travel a lot and I, I couldn't travel. It's been the silver lining that I have relinked with a lot of my contacts and have had many, many calls over the last few weeks. And it's been great. That part has been great because I felt that people maybe took a little bit more time because they were also themselves not in a plane or, of course. you know, trying. Yes. <laughs> so, so yeah, the, the, I think that's really basic, but works. It works. Yeah. Well, of course, at the end of the day, it's all about relationships and, you know, person to person contact. Yeah. And especially if you work, you know, in the enterprise uh, arena, yeah. if your business is, you know, transactional translation and customers doesn't want to talk to anybody and their problems are not very complex, you know, you translate simple documents. But I think the minute you get into enterprise, you know, it's a different, it's a different ball game. It's a long-term relationship, basically. Yeah, yeah. And trust, huh? it isn't it down to that full time? Right. It's like, it's all about the trust that you're able to build. Absolutely. And the way you build trust is by, by going above and beyond, I guess. You, you shouldn't be that person who checks on the client once a year. You need to have at least um, every quarter, like a touch base of some sort. Yeah. And, and, um, and also, you know, I think in that relationship building is, I, I, I will say, you know, also with new business, Knowing when it's not a fit and having the courage to say, you know what, we're not a good fit today. Maybe we'll be a good fit tomorrow because you will burn your reputation. Um, and, and I learned that many, many years the, the, in, in a bad way, you know, where I was rather successful in sales. And, <laughs> uh, and, and I remember selling to a financial institution a, 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 a bundled service with software testing. Oh, my goodness. It's absolute disaster. It ate me up. Because I hated the fact that we were under delivering to somebody who gave me their trust. Right. And that, I mean, sometimes, unfortunately, sometimes you need to fall, fall flat on your face to learn a lesson, um, and not do it again. But that's something I learned. If, if you know you're not going to be able to serve a prospect, right? A, a client, don't do it. Be honest. And that will earn you trust over time. Well, uh, so th- that's an interesting point, uh, Veronique, because Salespeople and sales teams have quotas to meet. They have objectives, and and in some cases, I've noticed that normally they they would like to get there no matter what. But operations is uh, what is left to you know to deal with the client, and and if it's a bad deal, if it's a bad client, they are the ones who will suffer, and as a result, the whole company will at some point suffer. So, how do you educate the sales team to actually be able to say no? I mean, it must be a very tough pill to swallow to. 
to have worked on a um, on a lead for such a long time on a prospect, right? I think it's down to how you set goals overall in an organization. You know, what I've seen is that if you give operations a certain set of goals, and these are not aligned with sales and vice versa, that's a recipe for disaster. And it, I mean, it's easier said than done, huh, for sure. But trying to actually make sure that people are rowing in the same direction and you align their KPIs is key. Because what happens is that as a salesperson, if it's not a good deal, I don't try and force it. Because I'm motivated by profitability or, you know, good fit, whatever criteria you set. And on the other hand, with operations, you know, you don't get shy of a million dollar business piece of business coming through because you also are motivated by this to happen. So I think that's the, the, it's, it's really down to how you, you set the goals for the companies and then you filter that down to the different organizations so that they actually work together and not against each other. Okay. So, uh, let's talk uh, a little about business development. I know that the client uh, has a business development cycle of their own where the need is created. They look for a solution. Then they look for someone to offer that solution. How do you figure out if a client is in the in this particular mode and offer a solution that fits that aspect of their need? I mean, depending where they are in that cycle. Mm-hmm. Uh, it starts with education, obviously, where we prospect mm-hmm. and move into identifying pain points and so on. Uh, what's your take on that? So there is that... It's all about, first of all, you know, with your strategy, who do you think is a good fit for your organization? So what are you strong at? Um, defining that and actually defining what I, I call that named account. So the right profile. So it might be, let's say you're a specialist in cybersecurity or, or, you know, like in, in, in technology for, you know, so maybe you, you, you target antivirus companies and, you know, so you know who you're going after because you know that you can serve them well. Then it's about finding the right People. So the first thing is the, the, this fit criteria, you know, or ideal customer profile, whatever you want to call it. Um, then you identify the stakeholders that you know have a role in um, in selecting suppliers. You know, it might be in purchasing or procurement. It might be marketing. It might be documentation. It might be e-learning uh, managers. Um, and then you need to try and talk to them and understand really what they're looking for. Sometimes you need to help them figure out what they're looking for. Um, and, and, and then understand what's the selection process. So what kind of, you know, you may have a formal RFP process. You may be able to just do a project and, and get on that, that way. So I, I follow a, a methodology, uh, with our teams called customer centric selling. This, I, I learned this, you know, 15 years ago at Lionbridge, one of the best training I've ever had because it is about, um, structure and control. Meaning that you don't go after pink elephants, right? You actually have very, very clear uh, stages in your funnel with different criteria. And the first one, which is the hardest to get, in my opinion, is what I call a goal shared, which is to identify a pain or an opportunity, a budget, a timeline, a stakeholder. So you have to have all of this to actually have a real opportunity. And it might take a lot of discussions before you get there. So I think that, you know, Sales or business development is not about just your persona and your calling and this and that. You know, actually, it's about being able to target the right uh, companies and then about driving this process in quite a disciplined way. So that's something that when I hire salespeople, I'm very curious about that aspect of their skill set, the discipline and the structure. And because I think that is what it, it takes today, you know, to sell complex solutions. 
So let me ask you um, a question related to that. Mm-hmm. How, let's say you've identified uh, the, the segment or the cross-section of uh, an industry where you would like to specialize and offer your services. How do you identify the need? I mean, uh, obviously, it makes sense to talk to people and hear what they have mm-hmm. to say. But how mm-hmm. often do they open up and, and talk about their needs? Because people have two types of needs. One is overt needs, obviously, like, oh, mm-hmm. I need translation. Then the other one is covert mm-hmm. needs where they, mm-hmm. they talk about things like, you know, I want to be a hero project manager. I want people to respect me. I want a big, bigger bonus this year. So right. you, you need some sort of a, a psychology skill in there to, to identify these. How do you do that from your experience? From my experience, it's about, um, first of all, usually you, you have the first, the overt needs is what gets discussed first. That's just, you know. Uh, and then, as you were saying, it's, it's really very much about a relationship is by gaining that trust and actually articulating that you can help your contact be successful to understand that. I mean, I think that I would say 90% of the time people open up actually, if they understand, if they trust you, if they know that you're genuine and you really want to help uh, them, they will tell you, or they will allude to you such things that, you know, you can put two and two together and, and figure it out. Second thing that's important is how they give you access to other stakeholders within an organization. For me, a red flag is when somebody doesn't want to introduce you to their manager or their colleagues and they want to keep it all to themselves. And I said, why, why is that? What are they worried about? Um, and trying to understand some, you know, that's a 10% sometimes where you just cannot get through. But I think when somebody says, you know, I'd love to introduce you to my manager because they know that's going to help them, you know, being put in a good light. So, so it's really kind of a, a process of building that trust. Yeah. And you help on some, and you know what? If you really care, you will help on other things. I have, I have cases where I know people in, 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 in some industries where their job is actually today to find tests for the factories that they, you know, they're in procurement, they're running factories and they need the workers to be tested for COVID every day they come in. And it's not good enough that it will take two days to get a result of the test. They need instant results. And I'm like, hold on a second here. We work in life science. A lot of our customers are producing these tests. And we know that some of the customers have these 15 minute tests, et cetera. I mean, it doesn't, I just say, Hey, mister, let me put you in touch with this customer rep because this is what they do. And you know what? You help somebody on something completely different. And you know what? Maybe in three, four years time, they'll say, Oh, you know, translational language services. Let's, let's have, uh, you should talk to Argos. These guys are very helpful. So I think, you know, if you really want to help, that it's kind of, it's the karma, you know, it comes back to you at some point. That is the value add. That is what you do to stand out. Exactly. Actually, I couldn't agree with you more. You have to look beyond profits and, and monetary return if you want to build a long-term relationship. You have to invest in that relationship. Let me ask you about the unique selling proposition or the offer. Since you have such vast experience with with sales, how often should a company review and refresh its service offering to make sure it is relevant? What does an offer of service from a translation company even look like? I mean, how often? I think in normal times, it's really healthy every year to kind of have a process where you review a strategy and and you identify areas where you might want to launch into or grow into and Today, I think that if I'm a company and the majority of my business is interpreting, you know, on-site interpreting, I review my services, you know, on the go, right? It, 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 it's a kind of a different environment. But, you know, what does an offer service even look like? If I look 
two aspects maybe. So first of all, the output of a service may not change necessarily. So if you take translation, what you're supplying is, you know, a good quality on-time translation that fits the purpose. I mean, this output doesn't really change, but how you procure that output, that has changed enormously around around the year over the year sorry so this triangle of you know before you would say you can get uh, time and quality but it will be expensive or you can get two out of three this is over now it's three out of three so i think how you supply a service is one area and then the second thing is that what makes sense in your business so it you know you've seen quite a lot of um uh trend in and i think i heard that also on the um on the MA talk you had with steve shu about data annotation, data collection, and and that's a kind of a natural expansion of a service. So that is, you know, you figure that out. What I like is actually understanding what our customers are looking for. And in my experience, really, you know, creating something in a little bubble without the connection to the customers, quite dangerous. Yeah. And, and, and you got to understand that. So Really digging and understanding what a customer is looking for. I find that this is often the recipe where you go, hold on a second here. What about if we try to supply this? Um, and you grow with your customer. Um, but that, I mean, new services, what we, what we have, same thing. We have a yearly, you know, strategic planning, et cetera. But because of the innovation hub, I have a monthly review with all the ideas, some of them completely wacky, but I'm like, you know what? Bring it on because we might come up with something that, yeah, but 99% of the time, it's actually tied to something we pick up at a customer. So most of the time, these these changes are driven by the customer or their needs. Yeah, okay. absolutely. absolutely. Uh, uh, continuing on that subject, for services companies, it's very hard to articulate what they're <laughs> selling as the value is not very tangible um, at the time of presenting it. In your opinion... How can translation companies articulate the value of their translation or localization service? I guess this goes beyond just sales and marketing. True, true. I mean, that's a million-dollar question, isn't it, for many, <laughs> many businesses, right? Because with service, uh, you know, uh, proof is in the pudding. It's like, try us and you'll see, right? I, I do think that um, there are some angles, you know, where you can differentiate. It might be specialization, Um it might be price. And I know a lot of people will go, oh, what are you talking about? Price. But hold on a second. You know, back to what we're saying at the beginning. If you're supplying a very specific type of service, like let's say this e-support thing, why should you charge by word? Charge per ticket. And it can be very cheap, right? And your differentiator, it might not hold for very long, but your differentiator for a year or two might be price. So the thing is kind of figuring out what is it um, that you believe you have? What is stuff I believe for mid-sized companies is then when they are generalists. So when I was running Explanation and I came into the company, that's one of the things I found tough because we were dealing with government, manufacturing, finance, etc. So it was kind of saying, what do we divest and what do we invest in? And you know what? Divesting, nobody likes that. Oh, no, no we're not going to specialize in it. But that really is key, I think, focus. Um, do something and be the best at it. And then you know what? This is going to translate into your interactions. People will feel it. They will say, I can trust this company. Right? So that's, that's, that would be my advice is that kind of think really, what's your SWOT? Where are your strengths and how do you focus? Um, and don't be afraid to divest. We operate in a very fragmented environment. 
Every aspect of our industry is fragmented. The languages, structure of companies, the lack of standards, the variety and incompatibility of tools and many other areas. I mean, there's so many areas that suffer from this fragmentation. The only thing we agree on is the age-old complaint about the per-word rate model for translation services. How do you foresee this model going forward? Is it subject to change anytime soon? So for 20 years, I've heard at every event <laughs> that the forward model is uh, something from the past and it shouldn't be there. You know, what I believe is that if customers are ready to change the model, the suppliers will actually also change the model. However, what I see in general is that when you have professional buyers in the mix, so procurement or purchasing, you know, they have scorecards and they want to compare apples with apples. And I think that's a bit of a blocker. It's just that today, you know, a rate per word, how easy is that? Mm, English, French, that's your... So I do think that if at a customer level, you know, the customers are, or the clients are able to convince their procurement colleagues to look at things in a different way, that's what's going to happen. You start to see it a little bit. Huh? You kind of subscription mode or or, or kind of... Arly, which I mean, Arly is a derivative of word. Let's not kid ourselves here. I do see that it's evolving a little bit. It's going to still take, you know, it takes all of the stakeholders to align for things to, to, to move on. But I, I, I have a great faith in, in the, in this industry and its flexibility and adaptability. So let's change the cost the clients, right? The clients' views. <laughs> and maybe so, Sam, if I may, one thing that I believe very strongly is that our linguists, our translators, should make more money in a different model. This rate for the, you know, for the, this race for the race to go down and it pushes on the translators. And I really think that it's going to change and technology will also help that to actually really, um, help translators make more per day because they will do more content and they will do more value add, um, you know, services. And I, and to me, that, that, that's quite something we talk about a lot in our organization. You know, how do we help evolve that? Because we don't want to be pushing on our suppliers, right? Our customers push down on us. So how do we, you know, how do we change that? I think that's, that's a very big topic in, in, in the business. So uh, that disparity uh, with regards to the payment model um, that has been imposed on, on translation companies and as a result on uh, freelancers, it has created a lot of uh, disagreements and uh, pain points that need to be addressed. And I think that can be done with um, a consolidated uh, billing model, if you will, or, or rate mm-hmm. rate program, which I don't know what it would look like, but I think the industry needs to uh, come to terms and, and define that. Uh, but unfortunately, that doesn't seem to be a priority at this point. No, and, and, and again, I, I do really think that the clients need to want to onboard that. I've had cases recently where uh, we put together very different model because we had predictability on volumes and type of work, et cetera. And say, so here we go. Like, like, like a phone subscription. And, you know, it blocked because yes, there was like, Oh yeah, that's interesting. But you know what? Let's stick to this rate per word <laughs> model. And you go, come on. You know, and we put a lot of work into it because we really believed that there was actually a, a really cool way to change this. Right. And you know what? And give predictability to the buyer, predictability to our translators in terms of volume and, and work and predictability of income. But, you know, so well, I think Rome wasn't built in a day. Oh, of <laughs> course, it's it's a matter of uh, time, and and at some point it will change. Let yeah. me shift gears a little bit. Uh, as a leader, you yeah. deal with uh, numbers and budgets. 
How is a translation company budget different compared to a standard business? How often should budgets be revisited and uh, updated? Do they mm-hmm. restrict your maneuverability as you are bound to them? Right. So, I mean, I think we're very similar to other businesses. You know, you establish what your top line, uh, your, your, you know, your selling is going to be and your top line revenue is going to be. You establish what you expect your, your, your EBITDA is going to be, you know, and then you have all of these things in between, you know, your cost of sales and, and, and all of that stuff. Now, how do we, how often do we revisit budgets? This year with COVID, we did a review kind of earlier in the year where we said, okay, we did the scenarios, the what if, what if, with the flexibility of saying, you know, if things fall off, you know, what are the things we can implement to, to, to counter, counter that? So far, we're lucky we haven't had to revisit our budget. Um, it's tough. Huh? Like I think in every company, take any company, if they say that they're going to do, you know, $500 million of business and something happens, you know, I think there's, there's limited maneuverability, but you just have to then, um, have a way of, of, of having some flexibility within your, your, your fixed cost. And, you know, in all fairness, I think this year it's going to get a lot of companies to really look deep into their finances and into what they need to operate in the leanest possible manner. I think that you, you probably see that also quite a lot in Canada. If I'm in yes. commercial real estate, I would be a little bit concerned. Absolutely. Because I do, you know, I think a lot of pe- companies and big ones are saying, hmm, do we know, need all that real estate? Can the work from home model be implemented in a more durable way? So I think that there are some aspects that in that budgeting where you're going to see quite a lot of change going into 2021 as well. I, I hear you. Let me ask you about uh, planning. How mm-hmm. do you build a business strategy for an LLC? I guess we all have, um, as you mentioned earlier, like our SWATs, our strengths and weaknesses. Sure. Uh, but does every company need to be unique in order to survive and thrive in the, in the LLC mm-hmm. landscape today? How I typically build strategy, you know, nothing like uh, magic, but starting from the top, you know, what is our mission and then also what our vision. So I, I've said with the organization, the vision, that's the big fat goal, you know, if I can call it like this. And then how do we do it? And I typically like to set it around strategic pillars. The strategic pillars come from a SWOT exercise. What are the strengths of the organization, the weaknesses? What opportunities do we see? Not just within our portfolio, but what do we see happening also in the industry that we believe, you know, is an opportunity for us? And, and what are the, the, you know, of course, the threats. So from there, you know, you derive what what initiatives you're going to deploy to support this strategy that, you know, and the strategic pillars you've put in place. I'm back to, you know, like an old record to focus. Even if you're a big organization, you cannot go in all directions. You really need to be clear on that focus and keep that course. Um, it might be that your strength is in technology. You know, I was mentioning some companies able to do, you know, very automated work for, for some parts of the business. It might be your strengths in languages. You may be specialized in African languages, and that's really a niche for you. And you should stick to that because you see that the demand is increasing. And, you know, so you can build around that. It can be around a vertical. You may be expert in life sciences, for example, but maybe it's a specific area. Maybe you're specialized in, in contract research organization. So I think it's kind of defining that focus. Um, it might be also this price nobody can compete with, right? Uh, um, so it's, it, I think that it's harder to differentiate when you're a bit of a generalist. And, and my take is that really look at your business. Have somebody help you look at your business is also 
a good way to set your strategy. Because, you know, sometimes maybe your the head is in the woods and somebody can come from the outside and help you take that step back. Maybe you're looking too closely and you don't see the full picture. Exactly. It may be that you're doing a little bit of multimedia for a company and then suddenly that becomes the main business you're going to be doing. You know, back in the days, I remember this small customer called Google <laughs> we used to work with that was doing $5,000 a month and nobody was paying attention to it. But the team understood there was something going on there and it became, you know, uh, huge, you know, uh, relationship. Perhaps you're looking very closely and you cannot see the full picture. Absolutely. No, no, you're, you're, you're so right. I think that there's, you know, anyone, there's external factors that you may have some influence on. So let's say right. MDR regulation. Well, you know, be ready for it and help your customers understand what it means and what they will need to translate and so on. And there are things that you just cannot control. I mean, COVID is the best example of, you know, nobody can. Last, I don't know. Yeah, I wish I we mean, had control over it. Too, I think that exactly. <laughs> nobody could really, right? So I think that that you also have to make peace with that and say, Right. I cannot fight it. So how do I adapt to it? But definitely this industry trends. Don't you think also I, I, I feel very good about the fact that in the industry, I think that's more and more actually sources of information you can get. Absolutely. Right. I mean, you're doing the podcast. It's 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 not just entertaining. You learn things. Right. You pick up on things. You see some publications on a weekly basis. So I think that more and more and with the, also some of the industry, then you have a, a picture of what's happening. And that helps you kind of figure out, you know, where you may want to uh, grow your, your, your business. I keep on harping on, on growth because I'm a firm believer that um, it gives you opportunities. It Absolutely. gives your staff opportunities, you know. So um, you've got to define the level of investment to make that growth happen, of course. And it might be organic. It might be M&A. But I, I do think that in general, if you want to thrive, your employees will love the fact that they will have more opportunities because your organization is successful and, and, and growing. We are all growing together. Let me actually uh, talk uh, uh, about something related to that. You, you mentioned growth. Uh, keeping that in mind, what are the most important areas uh, for a language company to focus on in their strategy? I mean, there's so many things to cover, such as growth, as you mentioned, uh, mm -hmm. in terms of revenue or business size, for example, such as headcount, brand awareness, and so on. What is the number one driver? Where, where should all your focus? I believe that your focus should be on the business. I mean, this is my personal opinion. I mean, everybody right. has maybe different. I think that if you start with that, if you start with your business, so that, you know, your revenue grows, your business grows. If you start with your customers, actually, that's what I'm saying. That's a very healthy basis because everything falls from that. You know, the customers, they're paying your paycheck, right? They're, they're, they're the ones that, uh, on, on the monthly. So I, I tend to start with that. I start, tend to start with, um, you know, Oh, kind of commercial aspect of the, the, the customer side of thing. Um, and then that kind of defines a number of, uh, of things. So take an example that, yeah, you decide to focus on life sciences. There's a lot of things that are going to fall from that. So what's in your portfolio? What are your plans for next year and a year beyond? What do you need to go deeper into? What does it mean for your staff in terms of training or expansion? You know, I, I think if you start with that, Everything kind of falls in, 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 in place um, as a consequence. Okay. Uh, let me briefly ask you about um, uh, how to measure success in a translation mm -hmm. company. You've been through uh, several uh, organizations, mm -hmm. large and small. The saying goes that if you cannot measure anything, you cannot improve it. So what areas of business do you think must be measured as part of KPIs within a language company? Mm -hmm. Well, 
I tend to say that you need to have KPIs in all functions, right? right. So that, that every, you know, be it finance, be it tech, being ops, or most important is to make sure the KPIs are simple and, and like and simple, right? Exactly, <laughs> because you know there's nothing worse than being measured on ten different criteria. I mean, I think that uh, you just don't focus then. And, you know, like what's most important. So I think that area of simplicity, mean, uh, being meaningful, um, is, is, and the alignment. You know, we talked a little bit before about ops and sales. And if they're not actually incentivized or motivated in the same way, right. you know, it ends up with a little bit of, uh, it can end up with a little bit of friction. So this interest needs to be, um, to be aligned. What, what I've, we've done. Uh, at, at Argos, which is interesting, is that we've put all of the management on the compensation around EBITDA. Very simple. You know, so everybody is motivated to say, you know what, uh, if we are struggling a little bit on revenue, um, how do we increase our profitability? Or, you know, I mean, uh, let's invest in that, but we will get more business from this. So, so I think that's very interesting because there's an alignment. Another thing which I think is kind of cool is that, um, a big driver. We have over 20 people who have a financial interest at Argos. So this, you know, they have a tiny, you know, or sometimes larger part of the pie. I find that fantastic in our industry to still see that, that the owner, so Kimon Fontukidis, uh, the owner of, um, of Argos, he set that in motion to say, I don't need it all. I want to share the success and, and people actually buy into the company uh, and you know what? If I look at the retention and the tenure of employees, it's fantastic. You know, people, and, and you see a difference in engagement. So, okay, I'm going a bit off KPIs here, but just talking about, you know, how do you make a business uh, be successful? That's one tool that if you can use it, I find extremely powerful. No, I, I agree with you. Uh, giving people stakes in the company motivates them to work harder. I want to ask about KPIs now. As a leader of an LSC, what type of a dashboard would you like to have access to every day? What kind of information do you want available at your fingertips right away so you can make quick, educated decisions? So I have a set of like data I look at from a commercial standpoint and then from a profitability standpoint. Uh, so I would look, so in sales, I look at our forecast, I look at our at our. Um, different uh, do- domains or sectors and how they're growing compared to last year. So I have a little all set around, around, um, uh, around sales. And the data points that I look at is, you know, evolution of accounts on, on existing business, the, the health of the funnel on, on new business, um, if there's any anomalies that we see in these, in, in these dashboards. Um, and actually, at the moment, we're working on that. We're kind of working on, on, on simplifying our, 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 our you know, our dashboards because we have a lot of, I mean, we use Tableau and we have tons and tons of data. And I'm saying, you know, what? less is more for me. I'm like, I'm looking at the big drivers is a top line, bottom line and, and what influences the things in between, um, in areas like, um, you know, let's say supply, supply chain management. I look on, 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 on a weekly basis is where our percentage, you know, is, is, is looking at compared to or goal and why that is. I, I, I don't figure out why that is. I'm, I'm, you know, I have, of course, experts in the, in the field who are just, um, indicating so that we can actually tweak things. It might be revenue mix. It might be service mix that is impacting the number. So these are kind of the things that I tend to, um, to look into. Let's shift gears here. Where do you see our industry and market heading in the context of the current pandemic? and the cascading effects it has had on people, economy, and society. 
Are we in a good place or do you foresee turbulence ahead of us? How would you advise translation companies to prepare? I do believe, you know, I'm not necessarily an optimist. I think that the sector will overall be resilient. Of course, I temper that with the fact that it really kind of depends on your business mix. If you are a provider for, you know, dubbing and uh, transcription services for the um, the media, you know, for the, the film industry, I think you're in a better place than if you were relying on travel and hospitality, you know, in any or interpreting for that matter. Or interpreting exactly conference events and all that thing. So I think there, there overall, I believe that the sector will be re- resilient, but of course, depending on on your work mix and your ability to pivot, because that's the thing about being fast enough to pivot. Um, it's, it's, um, it's, that can be a bit of a mixed bag. So how do you prepare? I would say that it's good to be uh, mildly paranoid. <laughs> I prefer to look at the, you know, tougher scenario than the rosy one right, right. and say, what if? So uh, definitely the fact that you need to enable your workers to work from the moon if it's necessary. I think that's very important to be able to have that flexibility so you don't have a drop in service, right? Absolutely. I think, uh, yeah. The second aspect I would look is, you know, on your costs. Right? And let's just be blatant here. It's kind of reviewing your costs and saying, you know, what are the nice to have? Well, it's, it's a normal, healthy part of running business. But I think even today, it's a bit more uh, obvious that you say, you know, do we need this? Do we need this big office space? Do, how do we kind of think a little bit differently? That's the second thing. And the third thing is that if you see, uh, yeah, your business is, is, um, is impacted, go back to your SWOT. What else are you really strong at? How can you kind of re, you know, evolve yourself or reinvent yourself? Um, and because we, we see it right now, people are talking second wave, this, that, that. This uncertainty. Absolutely. So uh, in the uncertainty, I, I do believe it's important to just kind of think at the, you know, the good scenario, middle scenario, oh, bad scenario, you know, of, of what can happen. And then accordingly, and do that with your, you do that with your management team. You know, I'm, in many organizations, such talented people, everybody's following the news. Everybody has got business acumen. It's kind of, of working course. together and say, you know, what can we add? So we, we have a very good rhythm of business in, in my organization where we have weekly call with management and we have monthly calls with employees. Really important because I'm thinking if I'm an employee, I want to know if I have a job in six months time, right? Or three months time. Absolutely. So this, this communication is really key. I think also in, 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 always, but especially in these times, to actually be very transparent to what you're accomplishing and, and be transparent about maybe some of the obstacles you're seeing um, in your way and, and sharing that without alarming people, but saying, and this is what we're doing about it, right? So uh, something related to that, as a leader, you're supposed to come under stress, under pressure. Um, how do you handle difficult conversations uh, when, you know, you have to deal with a situation like COVID where... You may not need your entire workforce and, and you have to deliver bad news. What's your style of doing that? Now, it, it is it is really tough. Um, somebody once told me that, um, you know, if I hire you, you will know if something doesn't go well and then, you're, you know, we're not going to be working together. And it goes vice versa. I, I, I really wish that if somebody wants to leave the organization that I have, I know about it. It doesn't come as a surprise, right? You know, this right. is two way. Um, I, I, I believe that handling these conversations is always difficult. Um, you have to do it in a, you know, in a compassionate way. You have to explain why this is happening. 
And then as much as you can, you have to help your employees for the transition. That I mean, you know, don't let them go and give them two weeks pay, you know, come on, be a bit, you know, it's on, sorry. Support them. uh, Yeah, exactly. So, you know what, support them. And also if you're a company owner, you have a network, you know, people try and see if you can, you know, so kind of have a bit of an HR uh, thing around it to see how you can help those employees. But of course it's always you know, I think it's the most horrible part of the job is when you have to part with, uh, with, with, with Facebook employees. It's heartbreaking to see those situations and then someone has just lost their job and, and, and I understand exactly what you're saying. So many things are changing in the world while we're still talking about the subject of COVID. In the past, there was a cliche that uh, every company wanted to change the world or make it a better place as their slogan. Now it is changing by external factors like COVID or innovation like artificial intelligence. Content volumes are increasing uh, at an exponential rate. Technology has become an enabler to translate more of it, of course. Where do you see our industry getting impacted by external change going forward? Well, yeah, that's a, that, that's a tough one. I, I, I think that there's an element that we cannot plan. You know, we get impact, you know, we see it and then we have to, you know, change our, our, our approach. I do think that one thing you mentioned there about content explosion, et cetera, that's an opportunity. And something that really kind of surprised me pleasantly during COVID is that still the volume of content um, is, is is increasing. One thing that I see because of, for example, COVID, if I am, um, you know, in, in the shoes of other LICs, I'm like, hmm, let's look at e-learning and training content right. because that's one of the very concrete things that is changing. You know, the the, the um, um, instructor-led training that for the next while is not going to happen. So it's going to be remote training, remote. And I do believe a lot of organizations are actually investing in that. So that's what I would kind of look and say. And and the general news tell you what's happening. So I, I don't look just at our industry. I look at how it's impacting other industries, be it automotive or being, you know, a retail and so on and say, you know, What's happening and how does that apply to some extent to us? But I do think that there's quite um, some areas of opportunities that are that are also coming up from what's happening. Absolutely. So continuing on that subject, now a lot of people see opportunities and they want to uh, start new lines of business or uh, move on to new segments. Tell me about your thoughts on uh, mergers and acquisitions in this industry. You have been involved in several deals uh, I want to hear from you as to what goes on and what does every leader do when when they're involved in a deal with, um, you know, uh, either it being acquired or acquiring. Yeah, you know, I've seen the good, the bad, and the ugly, as I could say. (laughs) And um, I'm going to start with something that's a bit emotional and that people sometimes look at me and go, you know, what are you saying? And I mean the culture. And beyond the numbers and the fit, etc., I look at the culture. Why? Because when you are bought or when you're buying, right, there has to be a fit, a fit of the people, a fit of the mindset. Otherwise, how do you set a common goal? And I think, of course, you know, if you're an investor and you're looking at the money and the return, etc., you, you, you don't spend a lot of time on that. But we are in the service industry mostly, right? Driven by people. So how can you actually obliterate that core aspect? Of your business. So that's the first thing I look at. It's like, it's silly in a way because it's like, you know, do I like the owner of this company? What does he or she stand for? Um, you know, what's the history? How do they treat their employees? You know, so that's the first thing. The second thing is what as a buyer do I bring 
that company. It's not just about what I get. So it might be that we are able to deploy a, a, a sales structure that that company doesn't have and help them, you know, grow their business. It might be that they bring us, I don't know, a piece of technology that's going to be very, so it's really, a, a, you know, a two-way street. And I would never consider it a, a one-way. That kind of aspect of the fit is very, very important. And of course, the third aspect, not is it a good value for the money? I do think, I mean, you've seen what's happening in the last few years, some of the valuations, and I'm like, sometimes I scratch my head and say, really? I think that is always a, a tough one. And, you know, we're all humans. We build companies. Of course, we're expecting, you know, good, good value for them. And we have maybe have a higher expectation than somebody else looking into it. So that's, you know, of course, the third aspect there in M&As. Um, and maybe, maybe the last thing is that I do believe that You've said it. It's a fragmented industry. There's a lot of small companies run by their owners. You know, they've put their sweat and blood and efforts into this company. So they want a good outcome, not just, you know, in their bank account. I think that they want their story to continue. So that's important, you know, looking at, at, at what buyer you're, you're considering. Their legacy is important to them. They want to be remembered a certain way, right? Exactly. Okay, Veronique, let me uh, ask you about, uh, you know, still on the subject of M&As. Consolidation has been ongoing in the top and second tier LSE sector for several years, as you mentioned. It looks like there is not much left in the second for the top tier to acquire. Uh, mm-hmm. What is next? Uh, in my last conversation with Steve Chu, mm-hmm. he mentioned something to the effect of grouping smaller uh, LSEs to form a second tier LSE for acquisition by a larger company. What do you see? What, what's your perspective at this point? I do think that today, because of what's happening with technology, for example, smaller companies are going to have to think of what next. And what Steve mentioned is actually something I had been thinking about before because I had seen some of these companies trying to do that. And I do believe that that is actually a very viable scenario. If you're a, a, a very small company, you need to think that unless you're super niche and super, super focused on something and is very resilient, think when you're a little bit bigger, a little bit stronger, it actually is where you can get further success. So I do think it's going to happen. One other comment maybe, uh, Sultan, is the fact that maybe there are also companies out there that are just not being found out about by CSA, NIMSY, Slater. I think that's I've come across companies where I think, you know, hold on a second here. I've never heard of them. And they end up being $5, $10 million or, you know, of, of revenue. So there might be also this element, right? But it's true that if, you, if you're talking $50 million up, you know, typically they're being, you know, they're being recorded as such. There is interest and in, in money flowing from outside of our industry towards uh, some innovative and profitable uh, language service companies. Do you think we will see an uptick in outside investment as our industry's profile becomes more and more known? Yeah, I, I actually do believe that this is not going to bait. Why? There's a number of, of things that I believe, you know, private equity or whatever, uh, you know, uh, kind of partners uh, look at, they look at growth because really we tend to be above GDP on average, right? In terms of growth. So I think that, you know, and it's fueled by what you were just saying about the explosion of content and the global trade and, 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 and all that. The second thing is that I think that they, they do see this high market fragmentation, right. you know, opportunities for consolidation. The fact that um, it's this technology advance, but I also think that the investors are not afraid that tech will actually annihilate the sector. Right. There's not going to be really a uberization of, you know, of our business. So I think for them, it's actually good that there's tech, 
but it's good that there's not tech that's just gonna wipe up the sector. Um, and, and I guess also they see that today, I think the barrier of entry in this business is a bit higher than before. So they do see that the smaller players can compete with the larger ones. So if you kind of look at all of this stuff, and then of course the last thing, because if you're in, you know, in this business, you're looking for exit, right? And return on your money, you've got strategic buyers. Right? right, you've got the big, what the super agencies, is, as uh, as my friend Florian from Slater would say, you know, the super, you know, they're looking for acquisition targets, and then other private equity or or, or, or you know financial partners. Uh, so if you kind of look at all that mix, I do believe that it's quite attractive um, for them. That is uh, interesting. Let's shift gears slightly here. Let's discuss content. Content is king, and it is growing. The growth is exponential, and it's good news for our industry. It is also a fact that there are not enough content makers or producers to keep up with the demand. For example, both Amazon and Netflix are competing to acquire good quality content, and more distributors are entering the market constantly looking for new content. That represents a huge opportunity for our industry to process that explosion of content. What is your take on it? How should language companies adapt to be ready to handle such a massive shift? What do you see coming in the next three years? Yeah, I think that if you're looking at, at, at these kind of areas, for example, you need to understand what you're going into. And, and it's down to really equipping yourself, if I can say that, or surrounding yourself rather with the right talent. Because I, I do believe that there are some areas where the demand, um, exceeds the offer, which is great, right? Well, that might only last a period of time, but hey, that's called opportunity. Um, and, and, and I, and I do think that there's a couple of factors, of course, is, you know, how do you supply that service from a, a process perspective, right. Right? but also the supply chain. And that's something I, I have to say, I don't have enough kind of insights into that in terms of, you know, supply chain expansion. Um, and, and I'm quite aware, yeah, that these organizations are struggling to be able to scale with all of this con- and not just content from English into language, but also, you know, it might be content going across, I don't know, from, uh, Farsi into Turkish or whatever. You know what I'm saying? I think that there's also this complexity. So I do believe that that area, a bit like gaming as well, right. is, you know, the, these are fast growth, um, you know, fa- fast growth sectors. And you can get actually this information. You can get the information to see what are the fastest growing sectors? What is the most saturated areas in terms of supply? You know, um, and then, and then be ready for, uh, for a bit of a journey, because this is not, you know, when you're selling something that you have never done before, you really need to plan this um, and have the right leader to, to drive it through. In general, what is your advice for language company leaders, owners, managers, and other executives? What are the core principles of leading a language translation company that is poised to be successful, socially responsible, and in general perceived as a good corporate citizen? I'm thinking of five things, Sultan. The first thing I was just mentioning, surround yourself with great talent. Hire people who are smarter than you, who are different than you, who are going to bring something to the organization. Be it experience, be out-of-the-box thinking, innovation. You know, So that the talent number number one always in my book. Um the second thing is that you got to listen right. and care. And care means, you know, you have to be sensitive to people, but also to situations. So this kind of really being aware and listening, very important. The third thing is be ready to change. We just mentioned it about, you know, pivoting into different domains, etc. Hey, you got to be brave and not, not be too conservative. You got to be ready to change. And, uh, and that, that's very important. 
The fourth, we talked a little bit during our conversation, is this communication. Be clear, manage expectations, be regular in your communication. There's nothing worse than avoiding communication and people start, you know, spinning the wheels, especially when you're running a global uh, organization across, you know, geographies. And the last, exactly, exactly. And the last thing would be the sense of urgency. Today, even more palpable than before. Don't wait. <laughs> Get things done, right? Don't, uh, because it's, right, right? Time is of the essence. And, 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 you know, your customers feel that, your employees feel that, the world feels that there's a sense of urgency. And as a leader, you need to be able to, you know, we're not putting crazy stress on it. It's not about that. Huh? It's about kind of saying, you know, if you can get it done today, don't wait for tomorrow to get it done. I think that's that's important as a, as a culture. Fight your procrastination demons, I guess. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Procrastinate in other areas. That's okay. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay, well, well, we've had a very interesting conversation so far, Veronique. My last question is about life and uh, work balance. Uh, do you have a rule or routine to make sure you live a healthy lifestyle and maximize your productivity? What advice would you give to other leaders in our industry? You know, a few years back, somebody called me a workaholic. And I, I'm a mom. I have a husband and three three girls. So, you know, there is things to, uh, there's attention to be given. So I, I kind of look back. And you know what I did? I took up coaching. So I was lucky enough to have a, a management coach come and actually, you know, I was already quite senior at the time, but helping right. me actually deal with some aspects that I thought I should improve on. And it kind of changed the way I spent my time because I used to be, I realized that I was a bit of a workaholic because I was too perfectionist. And that takes so, its toll on you. Exactly. And, you know, oh, I can do it better than somebody else. Oh, you know, leave it. I'll finish that, etc. And this actually was, was bad. Because I was doing too many hours and I was doing too, too many things. Um, and, and I learned that good enough is good enough. And then the second thing that I, 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 you know, because of that coaching, I kind of, hold on a second. I should be coaching people to do what I do. Right. Because then they can take the ball and run with it. So this was really something that changed my approach. Um, and actually, you know what? It allowed me to scale. It allowed me to feel great about these talents that were developing and, you know, they were getting better opportunities and definitely it gave a better balance. I call this also the, the elevator technique. When you're a leader, you have to be up there, but be able to go into the details with your team, you know, decide on what initiative and let them run with it. And that I really think that by empowering others, it actually gives you a better work-life balance. You know what they say, if you don't do, uh, if you delegate some of the things that you do, uh, life will become a lot more uh, pleasant. At least that's what I've found out. And, and the, I found it the hard way, actually. I'm, I'm trying to delegate to my children a lot of uh, household chores. You know, it's, it's still <laughs> I'm on a program here, but, you know, getting there. <laughs> well, we, we all wish that they did more chores. <laughs> exactly. Well, Veronique, we have covered some really important and insightful material. And I'm, I'm sure that our audience will immensely benefit from this conversation. I would like to uh, offer an open invitation to you for our next interview. Uh, we could cover any of these topics that we talked about today and brief expand on that where we could just simply continue this conversation and dive deeper into those challenges that uh, our industry is facing so i really enjoyed this conversation it was really nice talking to you same here fantastic i really appreciate the opportunity very nice to to get to know you and and i look forward to us you know having some further conversation it was a pleasure thank Absolutely. you so much for time. i want to thank you for your time today and wish you a very pleasant afternoon take care you too have a good one thank bye you so bye. much 
As always, we will be reviewing three products in this episode. The products I have chosen today are business-centric and applicable to LSCs of all sizes. The first product I'm reviewing today is Grafana. For those of you not familiar with it, it is a multi-platform open source analytics and interactive visualization web application. It provides charts, graphs, and alerts for the web when connected to supported data sources. You could plug it into your IT system to get information on your server uptime, or you could connect your TMS as a data source to get stats on number of words processed, specific languages, statistics, and so on. Or you could connect your project management system to get information on your KPIs, such as number of projects per project manager, your vendor statistics, or transform any data that is meaningful to you. I give Grafana 10 out of 10. Our next product is Udo, a very popular enterprise resource management or ERP tool. This is an open source product, but implementing it will require a very hands-on systems administrator or paid support from the vendor. While the software is very complex and comes with all kinds of modules which allows it to adapt to any industry such as services manufacturing, retail and so forth, I will focus on the CRM part as it applies to an LSP. The CRM is pretty robust and ready out of the box. With little tweaking, it can be a rival to some of the commercial-grade customer relationship management tools that exist over-the-counter for the LSEs. I am impressed with the number of developers and quality of support. I give Udo a 10 out of 10 in its class of software. The third software I'm reviewing today is Mattermost. In the past, we have discussed Slack, and Mattermost is an open-source alternative to it. It's a private cloud open-source communication tool, which is a highly customizable solution that lets you rewrite its initial code to meet your company's requirements. It is available across a variety of languages and can be very useful for an LLC to manage internal teams that work remotely. I would give the software an 8 out of 10. There you have it. My conversation with Veronique Oskaya was as interesting and educational as I had expected. I'm hoping you also enjoyed my conversation with her, and I look forward to receiving your constructive feedback and criticism. If you have not subscribed yet, go ahead and subscribe to the Translation Company Talk podcast on your favorite platform, and be notified of our new episodes with quality content as soon as they become available. Until next time. Thank you for listening. Make sure to subscribe and stay tuned for our next episode.